2: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator ten for ten percent off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, joined remotely by my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, you guys. Hey, uh, how are you doing on this uh, on this fine spring week? I'm having bad allergies, and one of my eyes is sort of swelling shut slowly. So good. You're doing good. It's a radio. It's a radio kind of malady. It's the annual tradition of Aaron's eyes swelling shut. But I have a great show for you today, nonetheless, despite the setbacks. Um, I talked to Jessica Lesson, who is the editor-in-chief and founder of the information, which is a technology website um, that now has actually existed for kind of a while, but uh, was, I think, noted upon its release in 2013 for uh, charging multiple hundreds of dollars a year for a subscription. And that was kind of like, Most of what I knew about it, I have come across the reporting and thought it was very excellent when I've seen it, but I didn't have a subscription. So I got a subscription on the company card. Sorry, 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 Max. (laughs) It's It's cool. Um, and I got to talk to Jessica about what running that business was like, um, how she got there from, um, being a business and media reporter at the wall street journal. And, um, I feel like we generally air on the other side of the paywall on this show this is the rare paywalls edition of the long-form podcast. Not to listen to, <laughs> yeah, but to be it's clear, this episode is free. The paywall. It's a free episode about someone who operates on the, uh, behind enemy lines on the other side of the paywall, and also uh, someone who operates in uh, a Silicon Valley culture that is not always friendly to reporting. It's another chapter in uh, Aaron goes to Silicon Valley, which is one of my yes. one of my favorite strands of this podcast we've been making. While, while never leaving my house or curing myself of the allergies <laughs> that go along with it, let me ask you this: Aaron, does the uh, the information have a newsletter? They do. It's excellent. If you want to make an excellent business like the information yourself, there's a lot of opportunities right now. And I think the simplest place to start is with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it easy to start small and they've got you covered when you go big. It's very, very good service that I recommend. Thanks to MailChimp.
2: And now here's Aaron with Jessica Lesson.
0: Welcome, uh, Jessica Lesson. Thanks for being on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: I know that uh, you are an early to journalism person. I wanted to ask you how you got into this. What, what was your initial attraction to this world?
2: When I was in middle school, my English teacher was in charge of the school newspaper, and she roped me in. And from that moment, I thought, how cool I get to ask questions and people have to answer them. And, um, I just kind of caught that journalism bug and throughout high school and college and various internships, I began to realize it was sort of journalism was like not picking a career. It was licensed to at any point, dive into a newbie and learn something. And so Yeah, that's really how I got hooked a long, long, long time ago.
0: (laughs) Did I know that you worked at the Wall Street Journal. Did you get into tech originally as an assignment, or was it something that you actually wanted to pursue as a writer?
2: I think it was my age, to be honest. So I was an intern at the Journal after college. I actually graduated and two days later started at the Journal. And I was an intern in the economics bureau, which I was not an expert in, but learned on the way. And then when I was lobbying to stay on full time, they had an opening covering emerging tech trends. And I think being 21, 22, whatever I was, and um, having then a MySpace account, which I think it probably helped in what the journal was looking for at the time. So never considered myself techie, but in hindsight, I was sort of growing my career alongside real transformation in technology and in business. And so I, I did, wasn't drawn to it other than it was available.
0: Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way, that there's sort of a generational cohort of people who that was the best and biggest um, business story and also a business story that someone with uh, sort of limited experience could find a way into. But before you got to there, for someone doing entry-level economics writing, where do you start in something like that without a background in economics?
2: You buy some textbooks. No. I mean, I I had (sighs) taken two economics courses in college and really enjoyed them. But I think this is what's so great about journalism and, frankly, newsrooms, right? You really do learn on the job. You know, I remember some economic indicator would be reported, and I'd be responsible for just writing up what happened. And I'd look back on the, you know, hundreds of other times reporters had written about that same indicator and they, you know, structured their story this way and had a quote from this person and you just kind of figure it out. And so, yeah, I remember reading a lot. I remember the journals offices at the time were sort of on like the beautiful Hudson River and I'd spend these like sunny summer lunch breaks, like reading the paper reading all the stories other reporters are writing about similar topics and like underlining, okay, so this interest rates means this. And so it felt, I was still in academic mode then, but, um, but I loved it.
0: Was it different covering business then when you had not gone through multiple cycles? Like I think so much about people who like cover the tech industry now. It's like, it's hard not to feel like cyclical, like you've ex- experienced things before. What was it like experiencing that first cycle of the business world? I'm, I'm, I don't know what years exactly we're talking about, but you sort of get thrust into whatever business era you happen to be entering the job force
2: in. Yeah, it's a great point because it. So it was 2005 when I started the journal, and Google had recently purchased YouTube. And that was a, seen as a crazy deal, an insane deal. What does Google want with cat videos on skateboards? And so there was this kind of excitement and enthusiasm. Online shopping was another core part of my beat. And I think what's interesting is I think we took that too far a, a, in terms of the media in covering tech, right? That exuberance, which I think is was well-founded and important part of the story, you know, it became a different story in the subsequent years as these companies became powerful. One reason I ultimately left the journal to start the information is I felt that technology coverage was all about hype and look how much this founder is worth and not about the underlying business. So I think it is a cycle and it's important to remember to point out the exciting things as well Back in the sort of early 2000s, 2010, I think we had swung too far in that direction.
0: Thinking back on those stories like, oh man, everyone overpaid for YouTube and this kind of general skepticism Mm. of, uh, you could pretty much cite any deal during that period that turned out to be the opposite. You could find quite a few of those takes. What is it that the press gets wrong in sort of constantly Doubting the next thing in that kind of a manner.
2: It's funny, as you were saying that, I was remembering an editor say, Why are you bothering writing about Facebook? They'll never make any money. I know this person still, they probably don't remember that. But <laughs> yeah, I think um within any trend, there are gonna be winners and total flameouts. And so I think a lot right. of people just look at the failures and say, This thing isn't real. You know, take something like Clubhouse right now, a fascinating trend democratizing audio, letting it so easy to start an audio conversation, moderate a room. I don't know. You know, we reported and they closed their latest round at a billion dollars. This is like a early stage investment, seems a little wacko, but if you dismiss that, you know, you're sort of missing, I think, a bigger point. You could say the same about NFTs and crypto right now or anything else. So I think ultimately it's very, very hard to predict the winners. A lot of investors try to do this. And I think sometimes where the press gets in trouble is like trying to make a call, right, as opposed to talk to customers, talk to investors, understand the product, you know, try and shed light on some of the facts here. It's not always our job to say this thing is doomed or not. I think many journalists, unfortunately, are more interested in that than in understanding what is this company trying to do. And I think always talk to customers. You may be skeptical of something, but if people out there are spending a ton of time on it, try and understand that. And I think that leads to more honest, ultimately, journalism.
0: So the information famously costs several hundred dollars a year, distinguishing it from, uh, I would say, like ninety five. Percent of models are somewhere between a porous paywall and like a wide open kind of thing, Um, which means that the breakout stories that have come out for the information are often more difficult to access. Do you think that changes what stories you choose to do, knowing that you're going to be sort of the exclusive source for a smaller number of people? Is that part of the calculus of what stories you want to write.
2: So I I think the way our business model affects our journalism is it lets us do the most ambitious important stories possible because it funds the most ambitious journalism possible and time and time again whether it's Andy Rubin being pushed out of Google or you know serial sexual harassers in Silicon Valley or even just you know the inside story of some important decision at Facebook or Google or Apple, even though we're writing them first for our subscribers, they are picked up widely across the business by Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of outlets. So I don't think our model in any way diminishes our impact. And what it does allow is for us to do that kind of journalism in the first place.
0: So when you're breaking a big story and then it's being radiated out by other outlets, is that part of your strategy of how you would launch a story like that and sort of thinking through, okay, how is this actually going to get beyond just our page?
2: In news and in tech news in particular, it happens pretty naturally. You know, I think um, there's a whole ecosystem of publishers who are aggregators and, you know, they're upfront about that. They link, you know, they credit. And that's just part of the ecosystem. Social media plays a big role as well. So I think for us, we found the better the story, you know, the rest sort of takes care of itself.
0: Do you think that because you have a Inside group of people who subscribe to this, who are heavily employed within this industry. When someone chooses to be a source for one of your stories, does that make the situation more Mm -hmm. or less perilous for them to work with you? And overall, like, what is the state of sourcing within large tech companies right now?
2: So just under half of our subscribers work in the tech industry. So our readers are business professionals from all corners who are following tech. And yes, you know, our core is in tech, and and we are very, very high concentration in that world. But the larger community is much bigger. And I think that our, our community is at such a scale now that like, you know, it would be one thing if we had five subscribers, and two of them were our sources on the story. But you know, we've been Thankfully, long, long past that. And so I think if anything, our readers respect the journalism, they respect our approach, and that makes them more likely to pick up the phone if we call. Your question on the state of journalism sourcing or tech journalism sourcing is quite a loaded one. Um, I think it really depends. What we're seeing now, we're seeing a lot of whistleblowers at big tech companies who aren't happy with the approach the companies are taking. I think we're seeing a lot of sources in tech lash out at the media. You're seeing a lot of venture capitalists really attack the press in this moment, try to build alternative services for getting messages out. I just sort of worry that there's a lack of appreciation for journalism and what great journalism is. And so overall, I'd say it's a tense time. But what I found over and over again through my career is, you know, you make or break sources based on trust. That can often over many, many years, and I think for our reporters who have been covering their areas for a very, very long time, you know, we we feel like there is good access, and and with the companies as well, you know, companies sort of seesaw; they they go through periods of really buttoning up, and then just wanting to do a big magazine profile once a year. But I find that, that with all the major companies, there's at least open communication. It may not lead to us getting tremendous amount of help on every story but there's open communication and i think that's very important
0: support for long form this week comes from listening if you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs. Threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself, risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox
2: Creative.
1: This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst?
2: Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I did it. (laughs)
0: In some of these larger companies like Facebook that are approaching sort of nation state status in their scale thinking that, you know, a number of people in executive positions might come across your journalism, I would think that this stuff almost functions as a way that employees are communicating indirectly with their CEOs through messages they give journalists about what's happening inside companies and not just what's happening, but what the opinion of lower level staff is.
2: It's an interesting one. I think leadership at these companies is pretty in tune with how employees feel. I don't think they learn about it through the press. I think if they don't take action, they may be confronted with it in the press, but You know, often when we're calling a company and saying we hear about this at your all hands meeting, you know, they're armed with the action they took and blah, blah, blah. So I think leaders, particularly in Silicon Valley in this moment, are very attuned to what their employees think. I've noticed a strange trend, though. They definitely don't want to appear as reacting to it and making decisions based on it. We saw this some of the very polarizing political climates around the US election. You tell a lot of pressure employees at Facebook were placing on leadership to block certain politicians and make certain content moderation decisions. And while often the company ended up making the decisions employees were asking for, they were very clear they did it because of the policy, not you know the tail wagging the dog, so to speak. And I think it's it's a tricky time to be in charge of a big tech company right now. You're balancing a lot of things and it's pretty sensitive environment overall.
0: Is it a tricky time to be in charge of a media company?
2: I think it's an awesome time. Honestly, I, I think it is one of the most fun times I could imagine because the story of technology and tech disrupting everything is immense. I mean, it touches everything. There's tremendous interest. Not a day goes by where it's not what people are thinking about. The pandemic has really been a tailwind to so many tech companies in a way that I think poses real challenges because it's in stark contrast to so much of the economy. And, you know, I feel a real excitement and obligation to like help chronicle that for people. And then from a business perspective, you know, I felt this way seven years ago when I launched the information people thought, I was insane. But from a business perspective, it's never been easier to get paid for doing great journalism. The barriers have been removed. Technology makes it seamless to subscribe. You can reach subscribers in great formats on their phones and anywhere. And we literally have this audience at our fingertips that we can talk to and that will give us the time of day based on how good our stuff is. And so while there's certainly corners of the news business that don't, I think, have the right model and and are really struggling. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of layoffs in the business. I think to be on our side where you're building new, able to grow, able to hire, it's honestly a tremendous amount of fun.
0: As someone who now has seven years plus of experience asking people for money directly uh, to write articles, what do you make of the newsletter economy that's emerging and and what does it mean for your business, knowing that some of the people who maybe would write for the information could be launching their own one person the information and some of the readers who might be subscribing to the information are already running up a hefty Substack bill.
2: I love the newsletter economy. I think it represents an incredible unlocking of talent. And There's so many interesting and important resources out there. I think my perspective as a journalist is how do we ensure that there's the practices and impact of quality journalism, not just in big news organizations, but also in smaller ones. And I worry that sometimes even we're muddying for the reader, right? What's opinion? What's fact? It's very hard to explain to someone you know, here's what went into this article. We talked to 27 people and they had this background, and here's what we did. And so, my hope and something I think a lot about is how do we ensure that really, really high quality journalism can thrive, whether it's in independent newsletter form or in massive newsroom form? And I think as long as we can do that, you know, it doesn't really matter what the underlying structure is. I do think there's it's a very different experience being a sole writer or being in a newsroom. Our team really takes journalism as a team sport to heart. You know, we've got reporters in Hong Kong triangulating sources with reporters in San Francisco all day long. And I think for a certain type of journalism, it's always going to be easier to do as a team sport, although you could win a Pulitzer if you're writing on Substack. Absolutely. Like, there's no reason you couldn't. And so I think my thinking in this space a lot now is also how can we support and help grow some of the great independent journalists? and help them really reach a maximum audience. You know, in starting the information I have a good sense of the toolkit you need to not just publish content but build an audience around it. And so, I've been thinking a lot about that toolkit and how we might, you know, play a role in helping expand it to the rest of the ecosystem. We've had an accelerator for a number of years where we've worked with journalists building subscription businesses and that's given us a lot of data as well about some of the problems and and maybe some ways we can help.
0: Thinking about the power of scale, you know, even with a much smaller than newspaper size team, what do you feel like the most difficult story that the information has done is? And what did it require to pull that
2: story off? Yeah, so we actually are our team, we have a few dozen journalists now all focused on tech. So if you look at technology teams, we're as big as many of the newsrooms that people think of, but that said, there's still hard stories. You know, the hardest ones for me are where you kind of ask yourself, is this a story? You know, those things that for whatever reason society is just hasn't reported on in the past, but yet in your reporting and kind of what you feel in your bones, you feel it's newsworthy. You know, here, mostly I'm talking about some of our work around sexual harassment of, female founders in silicon valley so many sources chalk that up to oh that's a tuesday in silicon valley you know that's not a story and sometimes they punch back saying oh that's beneath you that's gossip that and as an editor i think some of the hardest calls are when you you really listen to the facts and listen to your gut and decide to report it and i i don't know that that gets any easier maybe it does but I think it's really some of the most important stuff we can do. And and often in those moments, what I find myself, and you often face legal threats in those moments and all sorts of unfun things. But what I always feel is that I actually started a publication and we are independent precisely so we can do those stories.
0: When you think of those legal threats and certainly... Anyone who has been in this world since Gawker uh, used to exist has thought about the legal threats. Like, just in sort of a general sense, like, how did you educate yourself about what those legal threats are and what they mean for the publication? You know, what has that journey been like for you um, as someone who is making kind of the final call at, at the top of a publication?
2: So I, the journal did a wonderful job at libel training. That was a core part of our training, and and I think while I I did a little bit of editing at the journal, not much, but you know you it's ingrained in you, right? And not just libel training, but the practices of reporting, right? How you go about doing your job, and I think you know there are probably times that those seminars didn't feel like the most exciting thing, but they stuck, and there's something we've sort of continued at the information and. I think having mentors like Paul Steiger, former managing editor of the Journal, founder of ProPublica, Kevin Delaney, the founder of Quartz, you know, many, many, many others have often been really excellent sounding boards as particular issues come up, and, and then you try and hire the best lawyers you can to to teach you about what you don't know.
0: I'm curious how you cover large stories that. Will probably exist over a period of years. Like mm. the question of should large tech companies be regulated? You know, there's occasionally reasons that there's like a news hit on something like this, but then there's also just sort of this looming question that I don't know. It has how long has that question existed? Two or three years you know, longer?
2: You know, I'm I'm sort of laughing because I use regulation exactly as my case study when I talk about. Stories that are challenging to cover because they move so slowly yet their significance is so big. yes, and the honest answer is I think it depends. I think at this point in the cycle, tech regulation is something you you just beat the drum on, right or the developments in it, right? So right now I've said to our team, you know, if there are key developments and key cases around key companies, that's news. We don't want to sit on that. I think a few years ago we were more focused on the issues, right? We try and pick an issue like section two thirty. And content moderation and, and go deep and be ready to write if there was a big development in the case. But also, you don't want to overplay every big development is making readers think change is coming tomorrow. So I think, again, journalism with context, you know, when you're in the click driven world of the snappy headline, context is a negative. When you're trying to make intelligent, thoughtful, subscribers, smarter, context is a plus, right? So our readers expect nuance from us, which I think these stories often demand. And then, yeah, just kind of picking, you know, based on the moment, what you think. There was a moment when um, the FTC sued Facebook, and I was saying to our reporter, okay, you ready to write about the Supreme Court case 10 years from now? And he kind of looked at me, I was like, I'm kind of serious, you know, but but again, in the moment, even small developments could be valuable and, and change the tide on something and have implications for other companies. I think just trying to get that nuance in the article is is what we aim for.
0: How much are you thinking about, You know, as someone who lives in Silicon Valley, you're a tech founder, your uh, husband, I believe, is a tech founder. How much are you thinking about the psychology of the people who are basically in these five or six major chairs um, when it comes to something like regulation? Like it's easy to think of it as like a big national issue, but you could probably fit all of the people who have meaningful roles on it around one of those big tables, let's say. Um, and I would assume that you've probably met. Uh, half to two-thirds, maybe all of the people who sit at that table. So how much does your sort of personal thinking about their psychology color how you think this stuff's going to go?
2: I think you can't do business journalism without trying to understand what, you know, Jack Dorsey, Sundar, Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, now Andy Jassy are thinking, right? I mean, that that is how decisions are made. And so- you know, through reporting, right? And through talking to people who've worked with them, try and understand what what are they optimizing for? You know, all these tech leaders like to be principled and to focus on something. And I think they're all a little bit different. Some are more pragmatic, but understanding that is key to covering these companies. And, you know, there was a moment when Twitter, followed by Facebook, blocked then President Trump. I did sort of step back and think, did two individuals you know, censor the leader of the free world. and yes, <laughs> and um even though I, I agreed with that decision, I thought it was a good decision in the moment. You can't ignore the significance of that. So yes, writing about these companies is certainly really writing about their leaders and doing everything you can through reporting to understand them.
0: What are you optimizing for in what you do?
2: Our true North as a business is growing our subscribers. Because that means that we are adding content people feel like they must read. It's not just about paying with their money in news today, at all media, you need subscribers to be willing to pay with their time. You need to be worth their time. And so I think the beauty of our business is we don't have to do journalism that does one thing and then pay the bills another way. It's aligned, we do more of the work we think doesn't exist and our business grows and we get more resources. So you talked about businesses that have hybrid models and a lot of things. And when I started the information, I said we had to have one true north and that has to be our subscriber growth. And if we're doing that, it means that our journalism is having big impact. So yeah, that is our true north. Every time you get more sophisticated and you track the inputs into your true north and many other things too, but but that's it.
0: You've now got about a year under your belt here covering an industry where basically no one has ever seen each other during that entire period, and you haven't seen any of the mm-hmm. people. What what has changed in covering a gigantic remote workforce and what do you think it says for the future of, of what you do?
2: The main theme that strikes me during this period is how far tech companies have still pulled away from the pack. I know I mentioned this, but you know, you'll see sort of record unemployment and then record earnings the next day from all the big tech companies. And so I think COVID has really, and in many cases, remote work, if you think about Zoom and all these software companies, has really accelerated so much growth for so much of the business. I also think it's a very open question what the future of like work will look like. Right now, you know, a lot of the commentary is around how dramatically it will change. And I think it will. I think you'll see more remote work. You'll see more people doing fewer days in the office. But I, I also think there possibly is a tendency to like hype that up a little bit right now. In the Valley where competition for engineers is intense, the announcements over remote work have seemed a little bit to me like this cat and mouse game. You, you notice Twitter does it and then three days later, Facebook does it. And so I think that you'll see the embrace of it in many instances, but I think there's a lot of pull to people back in offices I think in the business world, there's a lot of pull, you know, back to concerts and events and things that actually, sports that have underlying major businesses behind them. And so, yeah, it's hard to sort of know what will happen. I also think when it comes to the pandemic in particular, technology is likely to play a major role in tracking vaccines, who is vaccinated, people's status, You know, I heard it likened to like our mobile boarding passes, right, our health pass. So that is something I'm thinking about a lot in this moment is how we can better understand how technology is going to transform that side of our life, particularly in the year ahead.
0: Yeah, I was actually sort of thinking about that, you know, with regards to San Francisco, I feel like, um, I guess all of San Francisco moved to Austin or Miami during the pandemic.
2: (laughs) Just to Napa, if you really, I mean, oh, just I, to I Napa. the Chronicle did this great article. It was like, what exodus? Like, the zip codes when people are like moving their mail were like an hour north.
0: What, when you think about why there is some thought that we will sort of go back to the patterns that we had before, I wonder if a certain amount of that is you know, if you're a venture capitalist and you're good at what you do and what you do is meeting in person with people in a small geographical area that not that many people can afford to live, there's a bit of an incentive to want things to go sort of back to the same way they were before, or at least reestablish the old order in Austin, perhaps. And I wonder if there will ultimately be a tension between, you know, people who had sort of an advantage situation before and people who, I don't know, are working from a laptop from some undisclosed lo- location, creating sort of industries without those geographical bases. Do you see anything sort of new that has come out of this period?
2: You know, it's a great question as it relates to investing, too, because, what I keep hearing from VCs right now is that everything moving remote has really accelerated deal making, and actually, I think, led to even higher prices because all of a sudden, you don't need to just talk to the three investors on Sandhill Road or 30. You can open up and run a very efficient global process. So I think it, in many areas, you could kind of make arguments both ways, right? You could see some of the perceived benefits sticking, but you could also see things sort of pulling people back. I, I do tend to think in venture capital, you know, particularly during this period, a, a lot of venture capitalists have made a lot of money. I think they've decamped all around the world. I don't think anyone is in a rush to go back to their in-person Monday partner meetings. Um, but I, I think you raise a great point as well. If How can a benchmark or a Sequoia compete in a world where literally anyone with a checkbook, right, can do a Zoom and lead the next round. So maybe I think they'll have to find new ways and maybe they'll, they'll keep hosting their fancy camps for their founders out in the Bay Area or something like that.
0: Thank you very much for this interview.
2: Aaron, thanks for the great question.
0: And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Susan Peterson, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, and of course the people at MailChimp who make this show possible. We'll be back next week. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it.